Amen. Thank you, Grant, and thank you, Laura, for blessing us with the gift that God has given you. Beautiful. By the way, I want to welcome, uh, we have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters here today from Esperanza Church. So good morning to you all. Welcome to Oak Hill. Glad to have you celebrating with us this morning. This is, as Grant said, our countdown to Christmas. Can you believe it's four weeks away? I don't mean to stress you out, but it's four weeks away. And so this is our Advent season, which is really a special time. And as Grant said, we've lit that first candle, and we'll continue to do that. And uh, let's not forget, before we just dive into Christmas, that it's also Thanksgiving week, right? Uh, Let's not forget that. This is a time when we all get to sit down over a good meal, over a couple of football games or two, and to take a Selah time, a pause from the hectic pace of life that we all seem to lead so that we can count our blessings and we can praise God for his goodness and his provision. So this really is a sweet time of year. And so I, I know Grant would, would echo this, but as we start to accelerate and get sort of crazed by the holidays, it's good to take some deep breaths and to, to remember why we're celebrating, why we're observing, why we're together on Sundays as we count down the, coming of the, uh, the first coming of the Savior. So here at Oak Hill, Advent 2019 is going to revolve around the very heart of the gospel. It's our goal this year to dig into the details of the birth narrative of the Christ child from every angle that we possibly can. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about the Messianic prophecies, and we're going to talk about all the characters that are involved in this important narrative, both the powerful and also the ordinary. And on December 22nd, which by the way, I don't know if this is a spoiler grant, that's going to be an evening service. We're going to gather in the evening, not quite Christmas Eve, but it's really close. And so we're going to gather for an evening service on the 22nd, and uh, we're going to celebrate the beauty and the brilliance of the Incarnation. But today, we begin where the gospel begins, and that's not in Matthew or in Mark or in Luke or John. The gospel begins in the beginning, and this is something that we've just recently talked a lot about in our Roman series In order for us to really understand what the good news of the gospel is, the good news of Jesus Christ, first we have to understand what the bad news is related to man's problem with sin. And you might be surprised to find out that the good news about Jesus is much, much older than first century Palestine and Rome. In fact, it's almost as ancient as you can get, going all the way back to the fall of man in the garden. Genesis, my friends, is where the gospel begins. Genesis contains the original prophecy about Jesus from which all the others flow. And that's going to be our focus this morning. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 15. And we're going to look at this in detail and try to discover the gospel in the ancient portions of the Old Testament. As you know, the coming of of God the Son into the world is what we call a redemptive act. A redemptive act. Now, just last Sunday, we defined that. We talked about what it means to redeem something. It means a buying back or a recovering of something by a payment or by satisfaction. And when we talk about the gospel, it's important for us to ask and answer the question, if we've been redeemed by Christ, what has he redeemed us from? Very important question. And the origins of the answer to that question stretch all the way back to the garden, to this passage. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15. So friends, hear me on this. Understanding the narrative that we're going to read together is foundational to our appreciation of the Christmas story. I know we all want to jump straight to Jesus. We want to look at Luke. I get it. 
and we will later in this series, but we've got to understand the foundations of it. Because if we don't know why Jesus had to come, and if we don't know how he fulfills God's greatest promise to us, we are never going to appreciate what he's accomplished on our behalf, nor will we grasp the dangerous plight we would be in if we didn't have him. That's why we're in Genesis today. So starting here, we're going to put everything about Christmas in perspective. This really is, I know we hear it all the time, the reason for the season, it's here in Genesis chapter 3. So this passage is going to take us back to that point where Adam and Eve plunged all of us into a horrible state, into separation from God and hostility with our fellow man. In fact, it takes us back to the source of every single sin and every misery that's ever been visited upon our world. It all stems from this story. So you turn on cable news now, you look at the internet, all the chaos in our world, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Before we begin, it'd be a wise and humbling thing for us to acknowledge something. First and foremost, understand this, God was in no way obligated to rescue anybody in this room. We can easily take that for granted, can't we, as Christians? I've been in the church you know, for so long, I, I take this for granted. No, God was under no obligation to rescue us at all. What he could have done is dispense with us in the same way he dispensed with the wicked generation in Noah's day. Just wipe us off the face of the earth, and he would still be good and righteous if he had chosen to do that. But in his mercy, he chose otherwise. And hopefully on this Thanksgiving week, we can say amen to that. At the very least, we can be incredibly thankful that God chose another path. Amen? Amen. So as we approach verse 1 now, a few important things have already happened in the story. First, God has created the universe. He's created our world, planet Earth, and he has made man as the very, the very pinnacle of his creation. He made man, male and female, in his image. They are the image bearers of God, and he gave man dominion over all of creation to be a steward over it. God has given man at this point both blessings and responsibilities. The greatest blessing being that man has intimate fellowship with the Creator. Intimate fellowship. He's been given good productive labor there in the garden. All of the needs that he has, he's being completely sustained and fruitful by God. And, and the man has been blessed with a perfectly corresponding companion, woman. And the two have now entered into a beautiful one flesh God-designed relationship. And they have an amazing home. God has planted them in this garden, and together, man and woman are cultivating this, this beautiful world that God has given him. What could possibly go wrong? Right? I mean, do, seriously, have you ever taken a step back and thought, I don't understand why it went wrong. Everything looks so good and so attractive, and so, so where's the contentment, folks? What could go wrong? Look at verse 1. Here's the answer. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So here we are introduced now to this new and mysterious character in the narrative, the, the serpent. In Hebrew, Nachash. Now there's all kinds of interesting implications that come with the, the language here. From that same Hebrew root of the word I just said, a whole bunch of other words fit into it that give us a, a full picture of who this serpent is. In fact, the Hebrew noun nechosheth is used in Numbers 21 to describe the bronze serpent, the bronze serpent that Moses made. And so it's been pointed out by scholars that it's quite possible that in the garden, this serpent had a shiny or luminous appearance. 
Something that would have attracted Eve and not scared her away. Have you ever asked that question? I don't understand why Eve wasn't scared by a talking serpent. Every girl loves a shiny object. Am I right? And so she's not repelled by him at all. In fact, in Isaiah 14, there's a reference to a particular being who's called a morning star or a shining one. Who is that being? It's Satan. Satan is called the shining one. Even more sinister, the same Hebrew word for serpent when it's used in the verb form means to practice divination, blasphemy before God. So it shouldn't surprise us that here in the garden narrative, Satan takes upon himself the form of some type of shiny serpent. And notice that he's said to be crafty. That's the New American Standard word. The CSB says cunning. The word in the Hebrew is achrum. And it, it, you'll see it in Scripture both used in a positive way. In Proverbs, it's used as a, pro, as a positive. It means that somebody is, is prudent or clever. But it's also used as a negative, especially in the book of Job, where it's connected to this idea of plotting, plotting a wicked scheme. And that's the best understanding of what's going on here. The serpent now comes to Eve with this crafty, cunning scheme in mind. Going on in verse 1, And he said to the woman, the serpent speaking now, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And so here we see the very first recorded attack upon God's word. It does not take long, does it? Satan suggests to Eve that God's law is maybe just a little bit ambiguous. Are you sure? Maybe it's not to be taken as seriously as she thinks. What he's doing here, of course, is is just planting the smallest seed of doubt in her mind about God and his goodness. Make sense? Take note of the fact that the serpent addressed Eve. Take note of that fact. Not Adam. He said to the woman. And this is an interesting part of the story. Now, I think we need to guard ourselves from uh, reading too much into that statement. The text doesn't really tell us why. It doesn't say that Eve was weaker than Adam. It doesn't say that she was more emotional than him or that she was an easier target than Adam, although I've heard that taught a million times. The text just doesn't tell us, right? But there's got to be a reason for it. It just doesn't give it to us. And so we're all sort of stuck speculating. And if I was going to speculate, honestly, I think he goes to Eve, not because she's weaker or she's an easier target, but because Satan loves to undermine authority. Satan loves to undermine authority. Listen, for a crafty being like Satan, both the man and the woman, were, they were both easy targets. They were both weak compared to him. But he is constantly looking to undermine authority, whether that's the authority of God or that's the authority of rulers of a nation or that's the authority of a husband in the marriage relationship or it's undermining the authority of elders in the church. He is in the business of damaging relationships like that. He is in the business of damaging Adam's authority here, his headship in the relationship. That's why I think he goes to Eve. Notice also that Satan is lying from the get-go. He actually exaggerates God's prohibition, saying in effect, so God told you not to eat from any tree? Is that right? It's an attempt to create in the woman's mind the idea that God is being unreasonable. He's being unfair. Really, this beautiful garden, you can't eat from any of the trees, right? He wants Eve to begin to feel, you know, that, that teenager who, who, who in the midst of their life feels like, my parents are so strict. That's what he wants Eve to, 
God is unreasonable here. He's been unfair. I've got all these beautiful trees, and I can't go to any of them. Well, look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. So good for Eve, right? She corrects the record here. I mean, is she catching on to Satan's scheme? I don't think so, but she does correct the record here. She begins by saying, no, that's not what God said, Mr. Serpent. It's not what he said. He said we could eat from any tree except that one, that one in the middle. But what's interesting here is she exaggerates something as well. She says that touching the one tree in the middle will cause her to die, that that's prohibited, but that's nowhere found in Genesis chapter 2, only eating from it. So this gives you the impression that maybe Eve was indeed feeling fearful about how strict God's law was at this point. And so the serpent says in verse 4, says to the woman, you surely will not die. So at first, Satan's scheme was this. I start by planting a little seed of doubt, but now this is a direct attack, right? A direct attack on God's integrity. Here's what he's saying. Eve, God is lying to you. You hear that? God is lying to you. You won't die at all. God is saying that because he's worried that you'll come, become just a little bit too knowledgeable, that you'll become his equal. That's what God's worried about. Look what he says in verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Translation, Eve, God is holding you back from fulfilling your potential. You could be so much more than this. God is unfair. He's holding you back. In fact, he may not be a good God at all. Have you thought about that? The serpent's inviting Eve to, to, to make a shift here, to shift from her commitment, which has always been there, to follow God's will and to consider beginning to pursue her own will because maybe that's better. Maybe she'll reach her full potential. So he's appealing to her pride, right? And appealing to man's desire for autonomy, to break free from the constraints of God's law, and really to be a God unto herself. By the way, those are the very same sins which caused God to throw Satan out of heaven. Pride and autonomy. And so now Satan's inviting humankind to follow in his footsteps. What he's seeking to do here is to grab some extra allies in his battle against God. Maybe I can get man on my side. And by doing so, he believes he can inflict a blow against the Almighty, the very same God who threw him out of heaven. Verse 6. By the way, it's interesting as you go through this, so many little nuances here that we can see in our own lives, right? Yeah? I mean, listen, don't, don't, don't be listening to this for my spouse or, or somebody across the room. Be listening personally because this, this strikes at all of us. This is all rooted in our flesh. We're in the process of being sanctified and the Spirit's doing a good work in us. He promises to complete it, but these things are still rooted in our flesh, right? So let's not be naive, naive about this. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's one thing she saw, looks tasty that it was a delight to the eyes, it was pretty, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's the big one. That's the most important of the three. It'll make her wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So with this newly discovered sense of pride and desire in her heart, 
Eve succumbs to what will later become the 10th commandment, the sin of coveting. Boy, that fruit really looks good now. I mean, maybe she she saw it before, but it was off limits. But now that the possibility has been laid before her, wow, that looks good. I've got to have that now. She must have it. Now, again, recall that God had given Adam and Eve everything that they would ever need. Absolute contentment. But now, but now she's seen something she can't have. Does this sound familiar? We talked about the law in Romans, right? How the law stirs up passions in us. It arouses passions that things that we shouldn't want, we now want, right? Well, now she sees it and she wants it. Doesn't take much to become discontent in life, does it? And so Eve eats from the forbidden tree and she expects something great to happen. She expects that all of, all of these things that she's now convinced she needs, it's all going to come to her, and she's going to have this amazing wisdom and all of this knowledge, and then she gives or she brings to Adam some of the same fruit, and without any recorded objection, he takes it and eats. There's no objection here, right? Adam is obviously expecting the same result. I'm going to eat this, and I'm going to become like God. Now, Eve had been deceived by the serpent, right? So she has some excuse here, but Adam is completely without excuse. He bears the mantle of headship in this marriage relationship. He's to lead his wife. He's to protect her. Yet here, he, he raises no challenge to what Eve is doing. In fact, he doesn't raise any questions at all. He goes completely passive in his leadership, and he fails miserably. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. That's what they wanted, Right? Right? That's what, they, that's what they were promised by the serpent. That's what they wanted. Their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What happened? Once they transgressed God's law, their consciences were activated. Their consciences came alive. That built-in alarm that's inside of all of us that says, uh-oh, I've blown it, suddenly comes to life in their souls. And now their nakedness, the one thing that was before this defined as healthy in their relationship now becomes unpleasant to them. And they're ashamed. Their innocence has been taken away. They see everything differently now. This was not the type of knowledge they bargained for, right? This is not what they thought they were getting. Turns out God wasn't the liar. The serpent was. Satan had promised them that they would be like God if they would just disobey his command. But have they become more like God or less like God? Far less. Far less. And here's the thing to really notice in this verse. Guys, this is maybe the saddest moment in the history of the entire Bible. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of really sad moments in the Bible. But look how sad this is. Rather than allowing this new feeling of guilt in their conscience, this shame to drive them back to God, instead, Adam and Eve do what every single one of us living under the curse do. They cover up. They cover up. They seek a self-atoning, self-protective way to deal with their guilt. Solving the problem wasn't hard, was it? All they had to do was run to God and say, I'm guilty. But they chose their own path. We all do this, don't we? And as Christians, this is a habit we've got to break. We all stumble at times. 
The question is how often or how quickly do you get up and run to God or do you get up and run from God? They ran from God. They desired to cover up. So let's pause there for a second. Let's uh, again be reminded that this is Thanksgiving week. So I want to give you three things that you can take to the bank on Thursday to be thankful for. And here's the first one right here. Number one, God graciously seeks out guilty sinners. Amen? That is good news. God graciously seeks out guilty sinners. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. By the way, let's not just gloss over this amazing picture we have here. The Almighty literally walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, this is what we call a theophany or a Christophany. This is God taking on some type of form, physical form, not permanently as Jesus of Nazareth would later on, but in a temporary fashion, taking on some type of a form so that he can interact and communicate with man. And it appears that Adam and Eve had a sort of a standing reservation each and every day to take a walk with God in the, what it says here, with the cool of the day, as the evening heat is, is coming down, they would meet in the garden and they would have walks. And how many of you guys would love to know what they talked about? Like, I, like I want to be a fly on the wall. What on earth did they have to say to the living God who walked with them? Must have been interesting. But on this particular day, the routine gets blown up. Adam and Eve don't show up. They're not where they're supposed to be. First, they had hidden from each other. They, their nakedness, they were ashamed. They put these loincloths on them. They would hid from each other. Now they're flailing around in their guilt and shame. And they, I mean, it, it's almost laughable, right? They try to hide from God. Like, get real skinny behind the tree. <laughs> I'm not here. I mean, it, it, it's laughable, right? Listen, if you're a parent, you know exactly what this feels like, right? Have you ever come home from running errands and the lid to the cookie jar is broken? And the kids are nowhere to be found. You know something's up, right? You know this, parents. So no doubt this had been, always been a time of enjoyment for Adam and Eve. They must have been refreshed by it. It must have been a wonderful thing. But now it's a time of fear. And why not, right? To be exposed as a guilty sinner in the presence of God is a terrifying thing. True? It's why we confess our sin. That's why we repent. Yet look at God's response. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to the man, to the man, interesting, right? Went through the headship of the man, called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, if you read over this too quickly, you're going to miss just how gracious God is with that question. Notice, first of all, and this is the point, God comes looking for his children. He looks for them. And of course, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly where Adam is. Nothing escapes God's eyes. But he doesn't shout. He doesn't say, Adam, get over here. Right? This is what we dads tend to do. Get over here. And, and here comes lecture time. It's not what God does. He had every right to do that, by the way, as the authority, but he didn't. So instead of driving Adam and Eve out of hiding with a sharp command, he draws them out with a, with a probing question. Hey, where are you? How gracious is that? Where are you? I came to be with you guys. I came here like we always do to walk, but, but you're missing. What's up? 
Every human parent who has ever felt the pain of their child disobeying for the first time knows what God is dealing with here. It is a painful thing as a parent. The very first time your child deliberately disobeys you, runs away and hides and covers up, it hurts in the deepest parts of your soul. And so here's God, the Father, saying, guys, what's up? Talk to me. God returns Adam's lack of faithfulness with tenderness. This is the good shepherd that we know from the New Testament, right? The good shepherd who loves his sheep, who goes after his lost sheep because he loves them so much. We deserve judgment, but he seeks us for the purpose of reconciliation. Think again about how deeply God has been offended here. His children, who he has done nothing but give everything to, bless them over and over and over again. They've listened to the serpent over his word, above all of his promises, but still his grace abounds here. It's amazing. One, one commentator wrote this. He said, when man is all careless, God is all care. When man can do nothing, God does everything. When man deserves nothing, God gives his all. Man rushes towards hell, but grace calls from heaven. Can we be thankful this week? that God graciously seeks out guilty sinners. If you know Jesus Christ here this morning, he's done this for you. In the midst of your sin, he called out, where are you? Now, realizing how foolish it is to try to hide from God, Adam finally shows a little bit of leadership, right? And he speaks up. This is point number two. God graciously shows us our sin. And you're like, whoa, that's not sure that's so gracious. Well, he's going to draw confession out of us because there's a third step. We call it reconciliation, but he's going to confront us with our sin in a very gracious fashion. Look at verse 10. Here's Adam speaking. I heard the sound of you in the garden, Lord, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Note that Adam still isn't being fully honest here. Or transparent, right? It wasn't his nakedness before God that was the problem. It was the reason for the nakedness that caused the problem. It was his sin. And so Adam gives another partial answer. We do this too, don't we? Even sometimes in our own prayer life with God, we'll give like a partial confession. Or like, I don't even want to talk about what I did this week before you, Lord, as if he doesn't know. But we'll give partial answers. It's, it's foolishness, isn't it? And so then God asks two clarifying questions. Verse 11, he says, well, who told you you were naked, Adam? In other words, God asks, well, obviously you're, you're feeling some sense of shame and guilt. Where'd that come from? And then comes the bombshell. Adam, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Every child hates that question from mom or dad, right? Straight up question. Did you do this? But there's even more grace here. God could have just prosecuted and condemned Adam right there. But what he's doing by asking questions, he's trying to draw him out. Adam, tell me what you did. Confess your sin. I'm a good and gracious God. I don't want to just hammer you. Share with me. Confess. And all Adam had to do at this point was say, you know what, Lord? Yes, I disobeyed you. And it's done. That's all he has to do. But does he? Mm, right? You just want to, come on, man. But do we do this? We do. 
It's amazing how quickly man has gone. Just a moment ago, he was completely obedient and sinless. Now he's devious and defensive, isn't he? Look at how he responds. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. This guy has the audacity first to blame his wife. And if that's not weak enough, then he blames God for giving his wife to him. Blame shifting all over the place. Blame everybody but myself. Blame circumstances. Blame everything, but don't look at me. I don't like the way I look right now. This is what we call chutzpah in Hebrew, right? He blamed God for giving him a wife. He had just been celebrating the fact that he'd got the perfect command. Now he's saying, but God, she's not that great. Wow. And still, knowing the full truth about what's gone on, God doesn't just strike Adam down right then and there. He continues to do some, some drawing out, and he turns to the woman, verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, is Eve's answer better than Adam's? Yeah. I mean, neither one of them show enough real contrition. But yes, Eve does better than Adam. First of all, she doesn't blame her husband, which is good. And she doesn't blame God. She doesn't go, well, the serpent that you made, he deceived me. So it's not 100%, but it's 50% better than Adam. At least she takes responsibility for having been deceived. Now stop and consider what this world looks like at this moment. One author described it this way. He says, suddenly paradise is not as beautiful as it once was. Eden has been ruined by the entrance of sin. Dark shadows fall on the ground as Adam and Eve contemplate what they've done. The smell of death is now in the air. Under a nearby tree, the serpent lies quietly. He alone delights in what is happening, for this was his plan from the very beginning. He intended to humiliate God by ruining paradise, and now he believes he's done it. He's shown the whole universe that God's great experiment would never work, that no race of beings could ever be trusted to freely obey God. Left to themselves, they will always disobey, even in a place like paradise. And so like a parent who's looking at the kids, have you ever, I know parents, have you ever lined up your kids, you looked at all of them and said, let's go, confess, and not one of them will confess, and they all point at each other, Right? That's what's going on here. It's now time for God to lay down the punishment. Verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now notice this. This is important. Satan's already been thrown out of heaven. Okay? God asks questions of Adam and Eve because he's seeking to bring them into reconciliation. There's no questions. No clarifying questions, no probing questions for the serpent, only condemnation and a curse. No mercy. And he says, you're going to eat dust the rest of your life. And really, that's best understood as symbolic language in the ancient Near East. Basically, you will be humiliated and you will suffer defeat and failure for the rest of your existence. That's the curse he puts on him. And now we come to verse 15, and this really is the focus of our lesson today and the source of our third thing we need to be thankful for. This is the big one. God graciously provides a path to reconciliation. This is the Christmas story, is it not? God graciously provides a path to reconciliation. This is the key verse, verse 15. 
God says, and I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, now here God is, is, is addressing more directly not the serpent itself, but Satan, the spiritual power that has inhabited this creature. See, again, Satan thought at this moment in his rebellion that he would get, gain an ally against God, that, that humankind would be on his side in this, this battle of the ages, but God is not having it. He is not having it. He's going to put enmity between Satan and the human race. That's, by the way, a fancy word for hatred or hostility. He's going to put a hostility between Satan and the human race. He's promising that there's going to be perpetual antagonism and endless conflict between these two groups. This is the battle of the ages, the enemies of God and the children of God. And it starts right here in Genesis 3. On the one side, you've got Satan, you've got his demons, and you've got all of wicked mankind. A line of descendants of seed that includes Cain and the wicked generations of Noah's day and Pharaoh and the, the Canaanites and Goliath and all the people who persecuted the prophets of Israel, all the way up to Herod and the Pharisees and Pilate, and of course, Judas Iscariot himself. A line of people who are the seed of Satan. On the other side, you have God and his line of elect children, men in every generation who have trusted in in God, who have believed his promises, have been justified by faith. Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Ruth and David and Daniel and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah and so many more. So many more. Beginning here in Genesis 3.15, guys, there's now this fundamental division in the human race. Two humanities arise after the fall. No neutral ground in the battle. There is no Switzerland in this battle. You are the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. That's it. And they have opposed each other continuously from this time right up to the very hour that we're in today. That is still going on and will go on until Christ returns. But more specifically, what matters most in this verse is the second half. Because this is where the gospel is declared. This is where the gospel is first announced. The seed of the woman, notice, has a singular reference point and a male pronoun attached to it. He, it says, will bruise your head. Well, who's the he? Well, in that day, this would have been a yet unknown man who will at some time in the future take a kill shot at the head of the serpent. And meanwhile, the serpent's going to take aim at his heel. Now, obviously, there's symbolic language going on here, and, and, and it's tough. There's a million opinions out there of what this exactly means, but the language is important. The Hebrew here is shuf, and it means, I don't like bruise. Bruise is not the best word in, in the in New American Standard. The NIV says crush, and that's a, that's a mess. That's going too far as well. In fact, the NIV makes the terrible mistake of interpreting so much in this verse. that The Hebrew verb is the same on both sides of this, but they say crush here and strike at here, but it's the same word. So you got to be consistent. It's bruised on both sides or it's crushed on both sides. I like what the CSB says. You like that, Adam? And it's strike at, strike at. He will strike at your head and you, Satan, will strike at his heel. Now, it's interesting. Some liberal scholars today completely deny that there is any messianic reference in this whatsoever. I mean, there's some guys you read out there and say, no, that's all mumbo-jumbo. But the problem with that is 
The ancient Jews believed this was messianic completely. In fact, if you go into the old Jewish Targumim or you look at the Mishnah, you'll find all kinds of rabbinic citations that say, yeah, we believe that King Messiah is being spoken of here, right? The Jews, the custodians of the Old Testament always believed that this was a messianic verse, and we agree. We agree with them. This is a reference to the Jewish Messiah, who will come, obviously, thousands of years after this event takes place, but he's the one that Paul says in Galatians 4 will come in the fullness of the time, right? Right on God's calendar, right when God says it's the perfect time, in the fullness of time, it says when God will send forth his son born of a woman, the seed of Eve, the seed of Eve. Now, Step back for a second. This is a very unusual statement in Scripture. The seed of the woman. Has that ever struck you as strange? The seed of the woman. Every other place in the Bible, descent is measured by the male. Except for this one place. Here it's the seed of the woman. And this, guys, is a prophecy that would have been veiled back then, but clearly evident to us now that this is a reference to the virgin birth of the Messiah. The very way that this king, this Messiah, will come into the world by way of the seed of the woman. And while Jesus walked the earth, wicked men driven by their father, the devil, Jesus said that, right? Your father, the devil, wicked men nipped at his heels, didn't they? Whether it was the stiff-necked Jews that he was teaching to or the scribes or the Pharisees, whether it was Pilate or, or Judas Iscariot, all of them would nip at his heels. All of them would play a role in his arrest and his torture and his execution. But in that very act, at the moment when Satan must have said, you know what, I'm winning the day. I am going to put to death the very one that's prophesied in Genesis 3, because Satan knows God's word, right? I'm about to put him to death and win the day. But in that very moment, God the Son strikes the death blow upon Satan's head dying for the sins of you and me. Dying for the sins of God's elect, including Adam and Eve. And then rising on the third day. Why? To vindicate the, vindicate the Father's love for him. To vindicate the fact that, yes, this is the promised Messiah. He is both Savior and Lord. And that transaction that happens on the cross, the paying of the ransom for sin, destroyed Satan destroyed all of his principalities and his powers. It confounded all of his schemes. It ruined all of his plans. No longer did he wield the power of death over us. In fact, that, that's why we read from Hebrews 2 in our call to worship. Listen again. Through death, he, Jesus, rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, freeing those of us through fear of death who were subject to slavery all their lives. We no longer fear death. That power was broken on the cross. John tells us very plainly, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And so this verse has often been called the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, Genesis 3, 15. The first announcement of the good news that God saves. Guys, the amazing thing about this is, here's the message of the gospel, God God saves, and it's two and, a half to, two and a half chapters into the Bible. We don't have to wait till Matthew. This is amazing stuff. Two and a half chapters in. What does that tell us? I mean, we, we looked at this a little bit last week when we talked about God's sovereignty. 
that God anticipated the coming of evil. In fact, he ordained the coming of evil. Without being the author of it or creating it, he ordained the coming of evil. And, and that even before he breathed the single thing into existence, he planned and he purposed to send God the Son into the creation to redeem his chosen sons and daughters. And here in Genesis 3.15, he declares it. He declares it, I love this, immediately upon that first sin. He doesn't wait. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't want to give generations this, this period of time to go, I wonder what we do now. Immediately upon the fall, God announces his plans and his purpose. Isn't that gracious? That is so gracious. One of the things I love most about this verse, and it fits so beautifully into what we know about how God saves Notice that God doesn't say, look, Adam and Eve, look, I really do want to save you, but I need you to cooperate with me. Here's what you need to do. Is that anywhere in the text? Like, hey, look, I got a bunch of things you got to do if you want to be saved, if you want to be with me someday. No. What does he say? He says, I, I will put enmity between you and the serpent. I will do that. I'll make a promise. I'll give you hope. I'll provide for your salvation. I will send forth my son in the fullness of time. I will make sure he's born of a woman, a virgin. I will do that. It's all God from beginning to end. I know we say that a lot when we're in the New Testament, but here it is again. God does the work. He is the one who will break the power of death over you. Who's the he? It's God in the flesh. It's God from beginning to end. He is the solution to the problem. He is the remedy to the sickness. And it all comes by God's grace. All of it. Not by what we can do to cooperate with him. Not, not, you know, if we can just do enough good things to impress him. If we can somehow earn his love. Not any of those things. But by his grace. Friends, are you in the godly line as you sit here this morning? Like I said, there's no neutral ground. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Are you in the godly line? Are you in Christ? If so, the promise, we just read this promise a few, a few weeks ago. Romans 16, 20, and suddenly it comes all full circle. <laughs> Romans 16, remember what it says? He says to the church in Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Man, well, why? Why would he do that? Because we're in Christ. And Christ will strike at his head. Friends, this is the wonder of Christmas. We talk a lot about that. We've decorated the wonder of Christmas, right? We want to instill that in you. Guys, stop thinking of Christmas as ordinary. Stop thinking of it as just a place where we run around and, and, and get gifts. And The wonder of Christmas matters. That the Almighty would become like us. I mean, Adam and Eve wanted to become like God, but... But God is going to choose in the fullness of time to become like us. Again, Hebrews 2. He says, sharing in flesh and blood. God's going to do that. Share in flesh and blood. Made like his brothers in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That he might represent us because of his humanity. God did that. God did that. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. To atone for your sins and mine. Let the greatest king become the lowest beggar. Let let the, the richest prince leave his palace and go live in the worst prison 
And, and neither of those examples can touch what it means for the God of the universe to take on flesh and blood, to condescend, to humble himself, to take on the rags of human flesh. This is what we have to remember at Christmas time. The creator of all things becomes a creature. The Almighty becomes a baby in a manger. The eternal, infinite being steps into time and space. Those are crazy concepts that we can brush over if we're not careful. It's the wonder of Christmas. And then if I add on top of that the fact that he did all of that and humbled himself for your sake, for your sake, would you then agree with the angels that this is good news of great joy? That he came into this world? Not just that he would lay, he'd be born as the seed of the woman, that's pretty amazing, but that he would have a human life to lay down for you. That he would have human blood to shed for your sins. That his death would become a substitute for the death that you deserved. That he would take upon himself your sin and in exchange for that, credit his righteousness to your account. That's Christmas. That's what's going on here. So let me wrap up with this. Right now, guys, as we sit here, end of 2019, we would all agree that this world is just in a weird state, is it not? And it feels like our country circling the drain and, and there's conflicts all over the place. Our world stands under the judgment of God right now. All of it. You ask, why is there such great sorrow and pain everywhere? Why is there conflict all over the place? Why are we constantly disappointed and frustrated? Because we're under God's judgment. Do you remember Romans 1.18? I know it was a long time ago. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, present tense, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right now, the wrath of God is being poured out. Because of man's unrighteousness. It started in the garden thousands of years ago, but it's, it's rolling like a giant snowball and it's picking up speed and it's getting bigger. Sin is accumulating. And listen, if, if God is to be a righteous and just God, he has to punish sin. If, if he doesn't hold every single sin accountable, if he doesn't mete out justice for every little thing, then it'd be an attack upon his character. And so right now, Wrath is being poured out. But friends, see in the garden narrative here what a gracious God he is. In spite of that, right? He is fully 100% just and he is fully 100% gracious. Full of grace and truth. Patient, long-suffering, not, desire, not desiring that any of us would perish for all eternity. He graciously seeks after guilty sinners. We've seen that so clearly this morning. So let me ask the same question that that God asked of Adam, where are you? Where are you? Are you hiding from God? Are you running from him? Are you covering up? If God, if God could take on a form and, and walk in here right now and he say, hey, where are you? How would you respond? If you're trying to cover up, why? Run to him. Run to him. Confess your sins and repent. He's given us the promise if we will just confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why would you fear this God? Run to him. 
Second, are you thankful that he's a God who graciously shows us the sin that stands between us and says, here I am. I just want to draw out your confession. I want to be back together with you. This sin stands between us right now. Are you there? Will you speak to me? This is our gracious God. We need that, don't we? We don't have to make excuses. God knows everything about us. So why would we not just come to him? Most of all this morning, do you understand that God has shown us this very amazing path of reconciliation? The gospel of Jesus the Messiah right here in Genesis 3. One last observation, and and this this hit me at like, I don't know, 2 a.m. last night. Like like a ton of bricks, man, just like like a two by four to my head. As I was reading back over my notes, isn't it interesting that when Eve turns to Adam with that fruit in her hands, she like extends it to him and take and eat. Take and eat. And that plunges them into a world. I don't think they could have imagined what that did. I don't think they could imagine the cost that God the Son would have to pay to redeem them from that. But then think of this. The serpent's temptation was take and eat something which God has not offered to you. And in order to reverse the curse, the blood of God the Son would have to be spilled. And he would turn to you, his child, and say, this is my body. Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Happy Thanksgiving brothers and sisters. May we keep these things in mind when we break bread this week. Amen? I'm going to pray.